you have a Bible, you can turn in the Old Testament to Genesis 23. Continuing our reading through the book of Genesis as we spend our time in the sermons preaching through Matthew. We take our reading from Genesis from chapter 23. We'll read the whole chapter. Lend your attention. This is the very word of God. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for, by, for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. And Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me, and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city, no, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron, in the hearing of all the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron that is in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as a property for a burying place by the Hittites. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. You can turn in the New Testament to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. This is the word of God. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, 
command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Join me in prayer. Uh, Almighty God, be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching of your word. Uh, these words that bring light and life, these words that extol the excellencies of the Lord Jesus Christ, may we see him as our Redeemer as the king who has triumphed over the great enemy and who is now plundering his camp to your glory and to the enemy's shame. We ask, Lord, that you would build us up as we receive your word. Address us as only you can. For we ask in the name of Christ, amen. In the return of the king, the witch king of Angmar is a foe too terrible to describe. Even his shadow falling over the battlefield sends terror into the heart of good and courageous men. This is the captain of Mordor's army. This is the monster who is assaulting Gondor and the White City. This is the enemy who has thrown down a good king, good Theoden king. And so we see him working his havoc against this good land. And we are immediately aware that some champion is going to need to stand and fight him. If his evil purposes are to be stopped. And there's an impressive list of champions that the reader has in mind at this point. Gandalf. He's in the White City. He's even attempting to go out and meet the witch, witch king in battle. Aragorn, the true king. Eomer, the king of Rohan. Imrahil, the prince of Dol Amaroth. These are the captains of the armies defending Gondor, men mighty, surely they would be able to stand against this prince of darkness. But the champion is none of them. And we are surprised because we do not expect it to be a little hobbit 
and a woman who slays this dragon. It's Mary, it's Eowyn, who end this captain's life. And that's part of the loveliness of Tolkien's world. He leaves ample room for the great deeds done by great heroes. Tolkien was steeped in the codes of chivalry governing medieval lore. But he also delights in unexpected strength from unexpected places. For Tolkien, there is a strength to be found even in what the world deems weakness, even in what some would say have no place upon a battlefield. Or to put it another way, if you aren't looking for it, sometimes true strength is easy to miss. In Matthew 4, we see true strength, which is easy to miss. For heaven's champion here appears in the most important combat that has ever taken place on this earth, as one pastor rightly puts it. And heaven's champion appears in this combat as a man on the brink of starvation, alone in a desert, accosted by the blows of a dragon. And the world is tempted to disregard him. Just as to this day, the weakness of the cross as the power of God unto salvation is laughed at as folly. So to hear what the world deems weakness is a strength like no other on display in the true champion of heaven. Make no mistake, Christ appears here clothed in the only true strength, the only true beauty that exists, the strength and the beauty of righteousness, cast in stunning relief by the ugliness of his foe and his surroundings. It's relatively easy to act beautiful in beautiful circumstances. It's absolutely easy to act ugly in ugly circumstances. Husbands and wives can attest. Blow for blow. <laughs> but to act beautiful in ugly circumstances. Why, this is an excellency seen on display in perfection in only one, the true King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, to a lesser degree, also those who partake of his spirit, whom he is leading forth as we are accosted on every side. For the Son came to plunge himself into ugliness, as the one clothed in the beauty of holiness and righteousness to retrieve us from our ugly and helpless estate. We sang in both of the hymns a strand of our theology that perhaps does not get as much attention as some other strands. He came to save us all from Satan's power as we were gone astray. Every single person had been conquered by the tempter to plunge themselves into ruin just as our first champion fell, Adam. 
And we, his offspring, fall after him. So all were brought under the dreadful sway of Satan and his power until one came to conquer this dragon and to lead many sons to glory. So let's look at this text from two angles this morning. First, our king's victory for us. And second, partaking of this king's victory now. First, it's important to see the uniqueness of this encounter between our king and the great enemy of God and his people. It's true that there's much we can learn about the nature of our enemy, the nature of temptation, about the help that God gives his people in the midst of temptation, about the value of God's word in the midst of temptation, about the role of the spirit in the midst of temptation. But first and foremost, this is not about us. This is about God's glory on display in heaven's champion as he does what no one else could do. As he does what everyone else had failed to do. As he resists temptation to the uttermost and conquers this foul enemy. And because he conquers this spiritual power, he alone now is able to dispel the forces of spiritual darkness as he has an authority greater than theirs. And this is what he has purchased at the cost of his precious and obedient life. Notice that this is uniquely his in chapter 3, verse 17, what does the Father declare? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then the Spirit comes upon him. We preach through judges. What happens when the Spirit comes upon someone? They go to war. They go to battle. The Spirit clothes a champion, and then the champion goes to fight God declares, my son, Allah, Psalm 2, this is my beloved son. But it's not the nations who then set themselves against him. The curtain is torn back, as it were, and the dragon then sets itself against him. And he goes to battle as heaven's champion. God leads him into this warfare. Notice it says that he was led by the Spirit. This is an ordeal that heaven orchestrates. Now certainly the tempter here seizes upon the very point that God just announced, namely that this is my son. You'll hear it. If you are the son. If you are the son. The enemy's tactics in one way haven't changed, have they? From the very beginning, what does he do? He raises doubt over God's word. Did God really say, if you are the son? God just said, I'm the son. The word has been declared, I am the son. And he's back to his old tricks. If you're the son. If you're the son. We can note that he is a liar. And that is how he works as well. By lying. And throwing shade upon the one who is the truth. 
But this takes place according to God's holy will. He's pleased to put his son to the test. He's pleased to use this foul enemy's designs to facilitate an occasion for the glory of the son, for the glory of God. This was the same sort of occasion that God had facilitated for Adam, the first son. We read in Genesis when the serpent appears and we think, well, where did he come from? How did he get there? And there's much that's mysterious, but the one thing that we can be sure of is that he's there by God's design. He's there to provide an occasion for Adam to showcase his loyalty to his God. Adam fails. Israel tested in the wilderness to showcase their loyalty to the one who had just brought them out of Egypt. This God like no other, this one who has put the gods of Egypt to shame, the one who has put Pharaoh to shame, Israel tested in the wilderness to showcase their unflagging loyalty to this God of wonder. Israel fails. Grumbling, complaining, believing the lie that he's not worth serving. It's the same test here wrought for the king to showcase the unsurpassing worth of his God and Father. Deuteronomy 8.2 You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you keep his commandment or not. It is the Lord's sovereign right to put his servants to the test, to put his servants in the furnace to reveal what is in their heart. And mark if adversity doesn't have a way of doing that. Mark if difficult circumstances don't have a way of burning up that paper of righteousness that we're able to keep constructed in times of abundance. He's thrust into the furnace of adversity here, and he is shown to be pure gold through and through, and this to the exaltation of the sun. The difficulties of this trial are many. This is a severe ordeal. He is in a desert. We don't like when the temperature gets over 90. <laughs> he lives in a desert for these 40 days. It is a barren wasteland. It's an arena of death. It's an arena of hostility. It's an arena of waste. It is an arena of curse. His setting is like the setting of Israel of old who was kept in the desert for 40 years. But mark how unlike it is to Adam's setting. Adam was tested in paradise. Adam was clothed in strength and abundance. Adam was Aragorn and Gandalf rolled into one. With the whole world essentially as Gondor. And one last vestige of Mordor remained. <laughs> the Lord Jesus is Frodo, naked and weak in the top of a tower, 
with the whole world in the grip of darkness. That's the image we're supposed to get here, a world of curse, a world of darkness, every one under darkness, except for heaven's champion. And here he goes to battle. Jesus is alone. He's hungry. He's been fasting for 40 days. If you skip a meal, you sin. <laughs> Mark, if that's not the case. <laughs> he hasn't eaten in 40 days. This is an extraordinary fast. Allow me a moment for an aside. I've been enjoying the ancient Christian commentary series on Matthew. It's this wonderful series where scholars have compiled uh, some wonderful insights upon the gospel of Matthew from the ancient church. And I was pleasantly surprised to find that only one of the fathers cited made the argument for Lent. In Latin, the quadragesima. Haley, you can tell me if I pronounce that wrong. <laughs> The season of Lent comes from these 40 days. This is why the church has constructed this fasting season. But note that this is not something given for us to emulate. This is not something that we are supposed to replicate in its exact details. Calvin points out, this is not repeated by Jesus each year. Jesus does this once to prepare for this combat. Jesus does not give his disciples this to do. Fasting is something that the church ought to do, and we'll talk about that when we get to the Sermon on the Mount, but it is not this. It is not 40 days. There are only two other figures who engage in such a fast, Moses and Elijah, and I assure you, you are not they. <laughs> It's rather in vogue these days to observe Lent as Protestants. And I get the appeal, the desire for tradition, something old, something deep, something with roots for a time that feels so rootless. But we have excellent traditions, beloved. The Sabbath day goes back to creation. The Christian Sabbath marks the resurrection of Jesus Christ and new creation. And this day is adorned with the faith once for all handed down to the apostles to this very day. It is adorned with bread and wine and waters and our union and communion with heaven's king. Brothers and sisters, Lent is an invention of man. We have far better traditions, far surer practices bathed in far purer light that we avail ourselves weekly to sustain us in our earthly sojourning. These have deep roots, beloved. Avail yourselves of them. Jesus fasted for 40 days uniquely that he might conquer this enemy in weakness and in humility. For such is the wisdom of God on display in defeating this enemy. We are called to emulate the weakness and humility. But trust me, you're weak enough. You don't need 40 days to prove it. <laughs> Notice that the temptation seizes upon his weakness. He's hungry. 
hungrier than you or I have ever been. It's difficult to imagine the physical ache that he would have experienced here. It's difficult to imagine the level of temptation bread would have been to a man on the brink of starvation. And that's exactly where the enemy goes. Turn this into bread. I know you're hungry. Now, it's worth noting that as the devil tempts us, he stirs up our sin. That's what he seeks to bring forth. He seeks to lead us to act out of that corruption. But in Jesus, there's no sin to stir up. So he seizes upon his weakness. He seizes upon his sinless infirmity, as the theological term goes, attempting to lead him into sin. Scripture is plain. Jesus is like us in every way except sin. And that means he knew hunger. He knew thirst. He knew fatigue. He knew the frailty of the human condition. And that's what the enemy sought to exploit. The devil comes to a starving man and says, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus responds with Deuteronomy 8.3. Man shall not live by bread alone, but upon every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now make no mistake, Jesus had the power to do this. He's going to work two miracles regarding bread. <laughs> He's going to feed 5,000. He's going to feed 4,000. He has the power. He's going to be in a boat with the disciples, and there's going to be a storm, and he's going to say to the storm, be quiet. <laughs> and the apostles are going to fall on their faith, and they're going to say, you are the son of God. Nobody else can do this. Of course he can do this. But what does Jesus say? Here the temptation is, use your power to serve yourself. And Jesus says, I've not come to serve myself. I've come to obey. And I've come to serve others. Giving my life as a ransom for many. Mark how difficult it is for us, even in the best of circumstances, to consider that all that we have... All our authority, all our influence, all of our abilities, all of our gifts have not been given for us to ask, how can I use them to serve myself? They have been given to us so that we may ask, how can I use this to serve God and serve my neighbor? Even in the best circumstances, we barely consider that question. Jesus is on the brink of starvation. And he insists, what I have is not for me. It's for others. It's for the glorification of my father. The second temptation, Satan takes him to a high place. There's reason to wonder whether these last two are a vision or whether he actually takes them there. Calvin thinks it's a vision. I tend to think this was literal. It seems like the casting down from the high place kind of has a threat. That the physical experience of it really presses home. But either way, in the second temptation, Satan takes him to a high place and he quotes Psalm 91 about angels caring for the son. And he tries to convince Jesus to throw himself down. 
And Jesus responds with Deuteronomy, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. God is free to put his servants to the test. We are not free to put God to the test. Now, we are called to prove the faithfulness of his promises by walking in faith. But we are not called to design some arbitrary test whereby God's love is proved to us if he does what we demand. That is not proving God's faithfulness. That is putting God to the test. And that's plainly cited in Psalm 91. You'll see that Satan is a selective citer of Scripture. He leaves off conveniently the next verse that talks about the sun treading serpents. But he also conveniently leaves off the first verse. He cites the protection promised, but he leaves off the first verse. To whom is provision and protection promised? Verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. By bringing Jesus to the temple, the devil is saying, presume upon God's love and protection by casting yourself beyond the shelter of the Most High. The second temptation trades on that ever so subtle distinction between trusting and presuming. Trusting God's promises and presuming upon God's promises. The one who says, surely God will not judge me because he is good, while refusing to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, presumes and does not trust. The man who refuses to work and prays, give me this day my daily bread, presumes and does not trust. The family who refuses to attend the means of grace and then prays, grow me in grace and knowledge, presumes and does not trust. The woman who flagrantly pursues her sinful course and says, the Lord is with me, presumes and does not trust. Our Lord and Savior says, I will not presume because I trust in my Father's promise. The third temptation, the devil comes right out and demands what he loves. Adoration. It's what every narcissist loves, the world to revolve around them. He is the narcissist par excellence. <laughs> he will suffer others to have momentarily as long as he gets what he wants, which is to say worship. And to bring this about, he offers all the kingdoms of the earth in their glory. This is an attack on the Messiah because what did God promise the Messiah? Psalm 2. The ends of the earth are your inheritance. Ask of me. Here, he accosts the Messiah in terms of what God had truly promised him and the way that God had promised to give this to him. For the devil knows that this will come to him by suffering. And here he offers the kingdoms without the suffering. Worship me, do not suffer, and I will give all. In the Lord of the Rings, even Sam is tempted by the ring. He sees himself as Samwise the Great, the warrior.
Savior who brings life to all. All were tempted by it. Gandalf, Galadriel, Aragorn. King Denethor could not fathom why they would not use it. Why not take the kingdoms and do some good? Sure, it involves a momentary compromise, but then you'll have the kingdoms. And you can do good. It's the live expedience, isn't it? King Denethor failed to see that to compromise, to avail oneself of such a dark power would only result in yet another dark kingdom, however well-intentioned the wearer. Israel's kings were constantly tempted to establish their kingdoms through expedience. David's census, Solomon's women, wealth, and weapons. Jeroboam's idols in Dan and Bethel, Ahaz's treaty with Assyria, Manasseh's child sacrifice, all of them the way of expedience. I'll establish my reign through unrighteousness, but at least the reign will be established, and then maybe I'll do some good. Sometimes we're tempted to turn to unapologetic darkness to get what we want. It's amazing how frequently the testimony is to those who have turned to witchcraft. Lonely, abused people turning to witchcraft to seduce, to wield power. Better to get what we want than to suffer, even if it means forfeiting our souls. That's the devil's lie. Mm -mm. Sometimes it's more mundane. Just sin to get what you want. <laughs> the thing you want is right there. Just, just take it. The path of expedience is tempting, isn't it? To do what is easiest as opposed to what is right. <laughs> Thinking that, fine, the way isn't ideal, but at least will have brought about some good. How much harder to worship God in obedience and trust that he will not withhold from you any good thing. He will supply you with everything necessary for life and godliness. The fate of the world hung in the balance as Jesus was offered the world. And the irony was, if he'd had taken it, the world would have been lost. Blessed be his holy name. He did not take it. He persisted in the path of righteousness and he gained the world. <laughs> For that's how Matthew's gospel ends. It's remarkable, this victory that Christ won here. Everything the devil offered him, God gives him at the end. Look at verse 11. The devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Ministering to him. Well, what do you mean? Giving him bread. <laughs> angels came? You mean the ones who said they were going to protect him? Yeah, those angels. What about the kingdom? What about the kingdoms that the devil offered him? Does he get that too? How does Matthew's gospel end? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He got something far grander than all the kingdoms and their glory. He got all authority in heaven and on earth such that every knee will now bow to the name of Jesus. The only king!
for this age and age upon age upon age upon age. Why? Not because he took up the sword, not because he appeared in some classic iteration of strength, but because he obeyed. Because he walked the path of righteousness even unto the cross as he loved God and loved his neighbor for your sake and mine. Notice the power that he has by the end of this episode. What does he say to Satan? Go away. And what does Satan do? He goes away. <laughs> because he's subject to the word of the son. Mm. Because the son has an authority that the greatest captain of darkness does not have. This is going to be the basis for Christ dispelling demons. What does he say? If you're going to plunder the house of a strong man, what do you got to do first? You got to bind the strong man. John says one is coming who is mightier than I. Here we see the one with a power and authority even to dispel the spiritual darkness which tyrannizes the hearts of every lost soul. His power over spirits in the gospel isn't this dramatic display that Hollywood salivates over in terms of demon possession. What does Paul say in Ephesians 2? You were dead in your trespasses and sins, following after whom? The prince of the power of the air, animated by the spirit of disobedience. That's possession. And it's a willful possession. But one comes who has the power to free from Satan's tyranny. Jesus Christ was victorious in temptation as no one else was. And because of that, he is powerful to save unto the uttermost. That's the conclusion that Hebrews draws from this. Hebrews 2.18 reads, Because he has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He did this in our stead as our champion, to plunder the camp of the enemy. But he also did this as one who now helps, as we are subject to similar temptations. And I'll make just quick, three quick observations on how he helps us in our trials as our champion. Notice that he assures us that just because we are tempted, that does not mean that we have no share in Christ. <laughs> Mark, if that isn't one of the enemy's great tactics, because you feel tempted, it proves that you have no share in Christ. Because this is difficult, it proves that you have no share in Christ. If you had a share in Christ, it wouldn't be this difficult. You wouldn't feel this ache like you feel it. But Mark, that Jesus is declared the Son of God, and then he's tempted. Mark, if that's not true for every Christian. Mary was made a squire of Rohan. Pippin is made a servant of Gondor. And that moment commences both their joy and their honor and their greatest struggle. 
For now they're soldiers in an army that is being accosted by the forces of darkness. The enemy would point to your temptations, the fact thereof, and say, see, you have no share. God's word would point to your temptations, the ache therein, and say, see, life is at work in you. Recall formerly when you had no share in light. You didn't even consider that you were being tempted. (laughs) If you had any pause over sin, it was momentary and it did not last. He would take even the signs of light and levy them against our soul to prove that we have no share in light. Let the Lord Jesus Christ's word reign over his. Notice second that his tactics, the enemy's tactics are boundlessly treacherous. He will exploit in weakness. He will go to the holy place. He will pervert scripture. He will give temporary pleasures if it works everlasting destruction. And he is relentless. One failure is only the opportunity to start a new temptation. Isn't that what it was? One failed, next one. Another failed, next one. Another failed. This isn't the last one. He's going to try to get to him through Peter. When Peter tells him, no, no, you can't die. What does he say? Get behind me, Satan. The greatest temptation is yet to come. When's the last declaration in Matthew? If you are the son of God, we get it twice here. If you are the son of God, do this. If you are the son of God, do this. Matthew loves three. Where's the third one? It comes to him from the crowds on the cross. If you are the son of God, come down from there. He's going to tempt until the end. He's going to try new tactics, but he's relentless until Christ conquers in full. But Christian, he's relentless. Even as Christ brings you to the day of breathing your last, don't be surprised if you meet there your enemy whispering his foul lies into your ear, saying you have no share in Christ, but you only need one word to dispel him. I am the Lord Jesus Christ. You have no power over me. But he's also merciless. He exploits the lonely. He exploits the hungry. He exploits the weak. Even the worst sinners can muster some compassion for people in difficulty. Not the enemy. He's foul through and through. If you are lonely, if you are weak, if you are sick, if you are tired, he will seize upon that very point to convince you to act in unbelief. He knows no bounds. He takes Jesus to the holy city. Indeed, the temple itself, this foul fiend, presumes to enter into the holy precincts. He's no respecter of place. He makes his way into the church, the household of God. He insinuates himself into the flock, sowing tares or deceiving sheep to act unaware in pride or lust or greed. And he does great harm to the reputation of Christ and the peace of the household. He manipulates God's word. He'll convince God's people that God has made promises that he has not made. And then when God doesn't deliver, he'll get you to shake your tiny fist at heaven. He'll take minor matters in scripture and convince you that they're fundamentals of the faith work worth dividing households over. He'll highlight your rights and blind you to your duties. Husbands and wives, mark that. 
He'll show you the sins of others and blind you to your own. He is fine with using Scripture in part if he works his foul designs. Our hymn... Our victory over him is sure, but do not underestimate his craft and power. That's what Luther sings, right? His craft and power are great, and armed in cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. And that's the last observation I'll make. You're well equipped because you're clothed in Christ. The practical weapons that our Lord gives us is to remind us that we stand in him. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might, Paul says. What is the strength of his might? It's the Lord Jesus Christ raised from the dead. It's heaven's champion exalted to the right hand of God. You belong to him. You're a soldier of Gondor and Gondor has won. <laughs> And now you bear the weapons of Gondor, particularly the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and praying all times in the Spirit. Christian, arm yourself with the word of God. Pray God's word into your heart, such that when the lies of the enemy come, you can recognize them as such and dispel their darkness with light. A light which is the life of men. On earth is not his equal. And did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is he. One little word shall fell him. Join me in prayer. Our great God and Father, sanctify us by your word. Bring forth the hymn of praise for our King. Equip us for the way that we might stand in the strength of your might unto the praise of your glorious grace. For we ask in Christ, amen. Mm.